And now we come to the message this morning. David, a man after God's own heart, and this is part 10. The title of this morning's message is Into the Darkness from 1 Samuel chapter 28 verses 3 to 25. So after a three-week break, we resume our series on the life of King David. The last message I did was mostly about David and this morning is going to be mostly about Saul. Now Saul is, he was the the first king of the nation of Israel and he began really well but unfortunately ended up pretty badly. Uh, This is because he made a lot of really poor choices in his life and he's not about to stop now. Now last week, Kevin shared with us some very encouraging words from Psalm 33 regarding our eternal hope. While this morning we want to end there, before we get there, I want us to take a walk, take a a journey into this dark passage. Many of us, of course, would know of the experience of walking into the darkness, but unlike Unlike uh, Simon and Garfunkel, who who sang a song uh, that went that started off with uh, "Hello Darkness, my old friend," um, we don't want to be making that a greeting for us every morning, because darkness are those periods of of anguish of the soul where it is difficult to see any light. It could be because of grief and loss. It could be because of our own sin. Or it could be because of the sins of others. It might also be the effects of, for many and indeed most of the world, of the current pandemic, that this darkness is setting in, in our homes, in our, in our suburb, in our nation, in our world. But there is a promise for the believer, as David himself has said in the 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. So first of all, in verses 3 to 6, silence from heaven. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gidoboa. And when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or by prophets. Now Saul is really in trouble as the Philistines have joined forces and and are preparing a mass attack against Israel. But as we, in our our last message, we would have seen uh, that the previous chapter and the chapters indeed after, in in, uh, 29 and 30, that uh, David himself is also in a real pickle. Uh, David is, is living at this time with the Philistines and the Philistine king, King Achish, tells David and his men to accompany him into battle against the Israelites. Now David, 
is caught between a rock and a hard place. Providentially, one of the kings doesn't like the idea of the Israelites, of some Israelite soldiers in his ranks, so they tell him, they tell David and his men to go back home. Now, while the Philistines gathered for this mass invasion, Saul was in despair. He was gripped by the unbelief of his spiritual and moral darkness. What's worse is that even though he he tried to inquire of the Lord, God refused to answer him. God did not speak to him, neither by dreams or Urim or prophets, because of his constant disobedience. To top it off, Saul had slain, if you remember, he had slain all the priests except one, Abiathar, who, who kept the ephod and went to, to David. In all of this, Saul must have found God's refusal to speak to him quite disturbing. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking, well, hang on. Doesn't, isn't the, the, the promise of God in, in, in his word that through the prophet Joel, for example, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved? Isn't that what Joel 2.32 says? The thing is that Saul went through some form of mechanical prayer, but his heart never truly repented. The ultimate result is a hardened heart to the point of no return. This is why we read in the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 11:14, I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. This is why we have to take both of these, these passages together. In his desperation, compounded by the silence from heaven, Saul is about to do something really stupid. In this hopeless, dark place, driven by fear and by terror, he went and consulted a witch. In verses 7 to 10, we see dabbling with the occult. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium so that I may go and inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, put on other clothes, and that night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. Now, for many unbelievers, dabbling with the occult is is actually quite normal. This is something that they're quite used to each and every day. And this is not something, not anything new. This has been going on for thousands of years. If you recall, um, when the Israelites lived in Egypt, they would have been very familiar with this. We, we know that, for example, that when, when, uh, <clears throat> when Moses, before Pharaoh, when Moses threw his, his staff and he turned into a snake, that their sorcerers came and they did the same. It is a fact, it is a fact that people in desperation will try almost anything but turn to God. But many times when they do turn to God, because of their heart and hearts, many times God won't listen to them. 
But God gives these instructions to Israel once they left, they left Egypt. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Let no one be found among you who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in, in, in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. That, that's a pretty extensive list, isn't it? Saul knows all this and he actually did the right thing because he actually expelled all of these people who engage in, in witchcraft. He actually ex- expelled them from the land. That was one of the, the good things that he did. But now in his desperation, he foolishly turns back on that which he once believed. It is a fact that temptation and fear drive people to do things which in their heart of hearts they never would have done otherwise. Even things that they know to be very wrong. They have convictions, they have principles, and yet when push comes to shove, they sort of throw that away. As Groucho Marx once said, those are my principles and if you don't like them, well, I have others. Um, Maybe you can call them flexitarians, not very deep convictions it is always you see and and for us i think as christians we also have to understand this and and pastors as well it it is always much easier to give advice and to preach and tell others what to do not as easy to live by those principles ourselves so saul tells his attendants he tells his soldiers to, to find a medium that he might go and inquire of them. Uh, a medium or a, a necromancer was someone who communicated with the dead. And any time you engage in the occult, please know that you are actually stepping behind enemy lines. Whether you're consulting mediums or spiritists or fortune tellers or psychics or, or even horoscopes, These are all part of the occult. One typical characteristic is is that these witches and wizards like to do all things in the dark. As we know, darkness is a a theme right throughout the scriptures and, and especially in the Gospel of John. But even in the Old Testament, that theme was all over the place. In Job, for example, we read in Job chapter 24, verses 14 to 16 and and 17, when daylight is gone, the murderer rises up and kills the poor and needy. In the night he steals forth like a thief. The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no eye will see me, and he keeps his face concealed. In the dark, men break into houses, but by day they shut themselves in. They want nothing to do with the light. For all of them, deep darkness is their mourning. They make friends with the terrors of darkness. And you're probably thinking, well, we live in a fairly rationalistic, scientific age. We put all our trust in scientists and uh, 
you know, the I won't believe it till I see it type of age, right? Everybody's supposed to be living rational lives based on reason. Apart, you know, quite apart. We don't want to believe in anything metaphysical or supernatural. But history shows that that society has never really existed. We are actually rapidly rapidly becoming one of the most superstitious generations in history. All of this is driven by the, the very basic human instinct related not just to curiosity but also a desire to control an ever uncertain future and the more the more that society moves away from God the more anxious the more neurotic it becomes just pick up any any news site on, on, on media or even the front page of a newspaper. It's all about fear. Especially with the, the current pandemic, it's all about fear. And rather than turn to faith in God, people want to delve deeper in search of other alternatives. We don't want to come to God. Let's what what other alternative is there? And because of this there is a proliferation in Clairvoyance and psychics and mediums. And the Bible describes such practices as not as, not as futile, but as pagan. What does that mean? Well, God forbids us to use these means not because they do not work, but because they are wicked. For example, when the gospel impacted the people of Ephesus, in the book of Acts we read that, that they had this a revival broke out in the, in the, in the city and, and, and what happened was that they, they had a big bonfire in, in, in the city where they burnt, they brought and they burnt all their expensive books on magic because they started believing in the true God and they wanted nothing to do with the powers of evil. And this is, sometime later, this is what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He he reminds them of their former life in Ephesians 2.12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. And this is the key verse, without hope and without God in the world. And that's the condition that, unfortunately, most of the world lives in, those who are far from God. In verses 11 to 14, the prophet appears. Then the woman asks, Whom shall I bring up for you? And bring up Samuel, he said. And when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out to the top of her voice and said to Samuel, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, we we have to recognize that this is one of the strangest passages in the Bible, maybe even disturbing. Because when the medium brings up Samuel, she is... More shocked than anyone. 
Whatever she expected to bring up, she certainly did not expect it to be Samuel. Uh, because what tends to happen is that they, when, when people go and, and consult mediums and spiritists and necromancers and all of that, they, they say, bring me up Uncle Charlie or whoever it is, uh, they, there is a demon who actually pretends to be the spirit of dead people. So you're not actually talking to your dead aunt or uncle or even mum or dad. You're actually talking to a demon. This is, in many parts of the world, this is, this is what happens all the time. And still people go and do it. But when this, this woman, when she sees Samuel, therefore, she freaks out. It wasn't just a demon, it was actually Samuel. Now, because of this, many scholars, even like Luther and Calvin and others, they actually had real problems with this passage and they didn't believe that, that it was Samuel. But I believe, and, and so do others, that, that if, if God wants to bring Moses and Elijah to be with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, then God in his sovereignty, he can allow Samuel to speak from the dead a word of judgment to Saul. Because the word that he speaks wasn't a lie, it was a truth that is simply confirming what he told him before. And God's word was spoken even if it came via an illegitimate method. God is sovereign. And even though Saul knows that he is doing something that is prohibited, it's interesting, isn't it, that it is still God's servant that he seeks. And I, I, as a pastor, I found this as well. People who in, in their normal life want nothing to do with, with a pastor or anybody religious or anything like this, uh, they, they somehow you know, want contact with, with somebody who has, who's a Christian or, or a pastor and others because in their desperation they know. They know where the truth is. Well, Saul here figures that if God will not speak to him directly... He will try and and raise up the spirit of Samuel through whom God spoke in the past. Again, we we see this type of spiritual desperation today. Uh, In in people who, who will not pray, who can't bring themselves to pray directly to God for whatever reason, Uh, for example, in the in the Catholic Church. People pray to, to Mary or the saints, but they don't want to pray directly to, to Jesus. We can pray directly. Others seek out the prayers of believers and pastors and, and padres. Oh, pastor, can you please pray for me? I said, well, you can actually pray, you know. You too can pray. We are given this privilege. We, why do this when we can have direct access to the mercy of God through Jesus? This is, this was our reading this morning, Hebrews 4.16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace 
with confidence, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us when? In our time of need. Now in verses 15 to 19, we have God's will confirmed. Verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I'm in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me and God has departed from me. He no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbours, to David, because he did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. I um, I find it actually quite, in in this dark passage, there is a bit of humour here. Samuel is somewhat annoyed with the interruption in paradise. Why are you, you know, why are you bothering me? Uh, So he tells Saul, you know, why have you disturbed me? And Saul's excuse, I have tried talking to God, but he wouldn't answer me. That's basically what he's saying. So so I called on you, so you can tell me what to do. But if Saul didn't listen to God before, why should he expect God to speak to him now? You can't expect God to keep trying to reach you, to talk to you, to give you instruction, to tell you his truth, to give you his commands, if you won't listen. Even after, even after knowing God has turned against him, why does he think that disobeying God further will somehow get God back on his side? As, as, as they say, if, you, if you've reached bottom, stop digging. Samuel's words are simply confirming that God is going to do what he said he would do before. God has taken the kingdom from Saul, is giving it now to David. God's word to Saul didn't change from the time he first said it until the time it would be fulfilled. Perhaps Saul's thought that time would change God's mind, but time never changes God's mind. He should have believed it instead of thinking that by further consultation he could reverse God's judgment. The Lord did not answer him. Why? Because there was nothing more to be said. It's like Saul had just, had just visited the oncologist and uh, he asked the question, which usually happens in these situations, how long do I have? And he answers, not with months or weeks, 
but simply a few hours. This is not what Saul wanted to hear. And I know we all want answers in our uncertain times. But sometimes, you know, it's better not knowing the specifics and it's much better, as the Bible instructs us to do, to put our trust in the God who, in our God, who controls the past, the present and the future and exercise faith, which is how we are commanded to live. In verses 20 to 25, the Last Supper. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. In verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she slaughtered at once. She took some flour, kneaded it and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and they left. This is Saul's last supper, but Saul is not hungry. Saul's men join with the medium in urging him to eat. Despite his disobedience and his heart and heart, let's be honest, we have to feel sorry for Saul here. It's pitiful, isn't it? It's a sad state of affairs. It's it's sad note when when even the the witch, somebody who practices the occult, actually feels sorry for Saul and, and tries to comfort him, trying to comfort the king of Israel and, and, and mate, you've got to eat something. But they were two of the same kind, right? I mean, each lived in rebellion to God and each of them, both the witch and Saul, they were under the judgment of God. Nevertheless, the medium kills the calf, gives them a, a meal fit for a king. Saul and his men, they eat then they go out into the night. They go out into the night, into the darkness, knowing that they face a certain death in the morning. This scene reminds me of another supper. You know which one I'm talking about. It tells us in, in, in John, as soon as, in John 13, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. John, in, in his gospel, he's, he's telling us more than just the time of day. He was telling us about the spiritual condition of the man. Judas was entering the darkness itself. But there was someone else who also entered into the darkness. It tells us in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 34. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Saul has one last supper with his men before he goes out in the darkness to die for his own sins. Jesus had one last supper with his disciples. He too went into the darkness, but he died for our sins. Final lessons. Firstly, the most hopeless misery in all of life is to be abandoned by God. To know you need to repent and can't. Because if you despise God's word, there will come a time when he will take it from you. If you persistently disobey God's word, you will have to eventually endure God's silence. This is a warning. This is why Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Because there will come a time when you will not be able to hear his voice if you continue to to despise it and disobey it. Secondly, we need to gain a perspective on our trials. While David often found himself in trouble, he was never cut off from God because despite his many faults, David always turned back to God. He repented and he knew he knew that he, he sought God's communion with God. And, and whatever trials we're going through, we need to also put them in the proper context. For all our losses and failures, the, the believer, the true believer, has access to the throne of grace to God in prayer. And because of this, we're still way ahead of someone who is without hope and without God in the world. So whatever it is that we're going through, and I know we, we, that, that saying, right, there's always somebody worse than you. Yes, and many times, most times it's actually true. But the most hopeless condition is someone that is without hope and without God in the world. That is truly pitiful. Thirdly, keep the lines open. Keep the lines open. What do I mean by this? There are many Psalms in the Bible, but I'll just name three. Psalm 13, Psalm 22, and Psalm 88, which are, are written from the depths of despair, where, where the psalmist cries for God's presence, but God seems distant. But even so, even so, the psalmist keeps talking, he keeps hungry, he keeps pleading for God to respond and to act. Even Jesus from the cross quoted the psalmist, why? Have you forsaken me? But in the end, before his last breath, he 
surrendered his life into the Father's hands. And he stepped into darkness for us so that you and I might walk into the light of life. Let me ask you, are we constantly seeking the one who has endured darkness for us? I hope that we are. And I hope that as the Son trusted the Father, that we might also commend our lives into the Father's hands. There is no better way. There is no other way. May God bless you. Amen.